1: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City, also in New York City, our A regular uh, pal and co-host here uh, is uh, Ryan Goodman of NYU Law School. How are you doing, Ryan? Pretty well, David, thanks. And uh, our other regular uh, this time of the week, uh, Dr. Kavita Patel. Um, uh, How are you doing, Kavita, in Washington?
2: I mean, a little bit uh, worse than I thought the start of 2021 would go, but we're hoping starting now it's on an upswing.
1: Well, you know, sometimes year, years start a few weeks into the year. There's there's kind of like overhang, you know. Um, also also in Washington, uh, another friend, Karen Finney, who is the Cherker Distinguished Fellow at the GW School of Media and Public Affairs. She is also a consultant. Uh, you know her probably as spokesperson for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. But she also uh, was a senior advisor to Stacey Abrams, which is some a badge of honor you can wear especially this week, yes. how are you, Karen?
0: You know the same kind of um uh, I think we're i said recovering you know it's it's I think that's a lot to absorb and and feeling you know yesterday went from a few hours of excitement about Georgia to oh my God, what's happening <laughs> so
1: Uh, Yeah, we'll come back to that because yesterday was as brutal as they come. And uh, finally, we're joined by uh, Rick Hassan, who's the Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science at the University of California, Irvine. Uh, He's a a specialist in election law. Uh, He had an article uh, just this past week in The Atlantic called We Can't Let Our Elections Be This Vulnerable Again. How are you, Rick? I would say uh,
3: shell-shocked, but glad to be with you.
1: Well, let's uh let's um start with that and I'm just going to go around the group in no particular order. Let me let me start with you uh Karen. Uh yesterday I I got to Washington at the end of November of 1993. um mm-hmm. 3. You know, I joined the Clinton administration in November of 1993. Right, and uh, we were still nominating people at that time, just showing you how quickly things were moving along there. And uh, so I've been, you know, involved in Washington for almost thirty years. Um, I, I honestly, I never thought I'd see anything like what we saw yesterday, and I am still in shock. Um, what was your reaction?
0: Uh, similar, you know, I came to Washington in uh, January 1993 as well for the Clinton administration. And just, um, although I have to say, there is, I think, if we think about yesterday, I think we have to acknowledge while Donald Trump, there's the part of this is about Donald Trump, and the, the fact that he was an instigator and that he was an instrument but that the truth is yesterday held up a mirror to who that who we are as who this country really is and you know i think it's important to acknowledge that it does it's not it, you know some are saying it's not who we are it is who we are but it's not who we have to be we get to choose to be something better and there were so many threads of yesterday in terms of you know, unequal uh, protection under the law and the comparisons to what we've seen with Black Lives Matter protests. And, you know, I said to some of my white friends, you know, that feeling of helplessness that you're feeling right now when you're seeing the defilement of our the Congress and the the, the this structure, that's a lot of times if you're a person of color in this country, how you feel, you know, personally having been pulled over and having been profiled, and so I think there's a lot that's very deep that we have to have a reckoning on. And I'll just share one other thought, which is uh, quickly, you know, I also think we have to recognize that uh, the through line of Trump as a, as a racial instigator and a danger to this country, to my mind, you could start with when he did a full page ad in the New York Times against the exonerated five. I mean, we knew who this person was And the fact that you have Republican members of Congress still thinking they can have a containment strategy and sort of play footsie with him um, is shameful. And that is among the layers that I think we have to, we will have to work through as a country, frankly.
1: Yeah, no, some of those those Republican stories, whether they're sort of road to Damascus stories or uh, other rationalizations are stunning. Today we had Lindsey Graham say, Well, I don't know if we should remove him, but if he does one more thing. You I was like, like how many many swings at the ball does this guy get? Um, uh, Rick, we were gonna start with talking with you about election law because we've gone through a period in which election law has really been at the center of everything. Um, And yesterday we expected to have some kind of a debate about election law on the floor of the Senate and of the House. Didn't happen. What was your reaction? I suppose you were sitting there waiting for that too.
3: Well, I think that this is the culmination of at least five years of uh, concern about peaceful transitions of power. It began before Trump was even in office in 2016, uh, when he was saying that he would not necessarily accept the results if he lost then. And of course, even when he won, he made the wildly false claim that, three to five million non-citizens voted in the election. He's been beating the voter fraud drum for years. He's been stoking his base. He told us that there was going to be a wild time on January 6th, and you know he, he incited the mob. Uh, and so uh, I wrote a book back that came out in February called the Election Meltdown, because I was concerned about peaceful transitions of power. I remember writing back when George W. Bush handed power to Barack Obama and saying how we just let these moments go unremarked, but we should never take for granted uh, that you could have a conservative Republican hand power to a liberal Democrat. And that's just how it is in our country. And that uh, things have just deteriorated so much in the last decade. It, it, was, it was, I think, the saddest political day uh, in my lifetime that I can remember. I'm too young to remember the MLK assassination or the RFK assassination, but this was, a terrible moment for our democracy. And we're really uh, you know, on a knife's edge now. It's a question of what direction this country is going to go in. Are we going to have elections where, where they're conducted fairly and losers accept the results and agree to fight another day and comply with the rule of law? Or are we going to deteriorate into a kind of uh, authoritarian type uh, pseudo democracy that we've seen happen in so many places uh, so many other places around the world. I worry that this American exceptionalism uh, myth uh, has has made people uh, somehow inoculated from the dangers that we face.
1: You know, Kavita, you've been in Washington for a while. You, you know, played a leading role in the Obama administration. You worked on the hill for a while. You've worked in the, in the building. Uh, and you must have some reactions to that. One of the thoughts that I had, though, as I was watching it all, was that it's not just that there, this is the first coup attempt in our history, it's not just that the president stood hundreds of yards away from the Capitol and incited people to storm the Capitol. It's not just that he was aided and abetted by senators and congressmen. Although all of those things are horrible stories that no one will ever forget, nor should they. But we were doing all of this effectively in wartime. We were doing it at a time when there are 350,000 people dead of a pandemic. That, you know that we've had another study that suggests the number is probably five hundred thousand people who are already dead from this pandemic uh, that hundreds of thousands of more. you know, and those are the kind of things that are supposed to bring countries together and they're supposed to rise up above these things. And yet we had this breakdown in the middle of all of that. And obviously, that's something you've been involved with. What were your feelings?
2: yeah, i'll I'll just summarize it in kind of how my day was yesterday. so, uh, my friend runs the GW kind of trauma unit. And she told me that like they were on high alert because they did expect fatalities or whatever would happen. And, and as obviously three dead now. And at the same time, I had friends, one who worked for Pelosi and another who worked for McConnell who was kind of texting because we were all trying to figure out the friends we had on the Hill, were they safe and what was happening and there. And, and they literally, and these are all kind of veteran, you veteran, know, people who have been veterans on the Hill who have been there for decades. And they're like, I've never seen anything like this. And they're like, my boss is scared. And, you know, now it's coming out. Um, yesterday, uh, we found out, I found out from people that it was very clear that, you know, some some people, including some senators, potentially congressmen uh, and women were kind of helpful to these protesters in some way. It became very clear kind of talking to my friends who were sheltering in place. And one of whom has children my age and and said, you know, I'm really worried, like I couldn't, I might not make it home. I don't know what's gonna happen. You know, we could all be dead by the end of the day. And it just seemed like it seemed dystopian to kind of talk to one friend who's running like the trauma unit at GW, waiting for those fatalities or waiting for those gunshot victims, or and then another who's literally hiding, sheltering in place in their offices. And, you know, my heart goes, I I will say this, it's um not gonna be popular. I I know some of those capital policemen, you know, they're it's It's so tragic how this entire thing has created, you know, this cascade of distrust and mistrust. and i'll I'll go to you know our two guests, you know, Karen, when I can never forget, like before all the Podesta emails and all the WikiLeaks stupidity came out, Karen was the one at the podium talking about Hillary Clinton's reminders about white nationalism, white nationalism. She was right. She was right back then. <laughs> and what we saw yesterday with a Confederate flag being carried through, and And fifteen people arrested, that was to me, David, that wasn't Trump and Maga. It, it was. It was incited. That terrorist attack was incited by this person. won't even call him president. but that was the victory of white nationalism and, and Rick, you' um I, I can't help it, you know I, I, I read I read parts of your book. Uh, I will read all of it, I promise this weekend. I read parts of your book, and I was struck where you did an update for some journal and you said that you know, um, this debacle of like the election is unlikely to happen in November. And, and you said it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm reading now because what it's most likely to save us from a Twitterized Bush v. Gore and possible post election violence in November in neither an honest election system nor counter speech to combat election misinformation. Instead, simply speaking numerically about the margin of litigation, the odds are against an election close enough to go into overtime in a state crucial for the Electoral College outcome. Nobody could ever, I mean, I would, when I was reading your, you know, your four kind of debacles in elections, I was like, yeah, that's right. No, you, nobody, no scholar, nobody could have kind of thought what unfolded yesterday and will continue to unfold because Karen, those words four years ago are still true today to your point. This isn't who we are, but it is who we are. So David, it's the reason people don't care that, you know, we surpass 350,000 deaths and that they're running out of oxygen in LA.
1: Yeah, and and you know, obviously, we're gonna have to come back to that because you know that's in many ways the big story, the big story of our time. Ryan, as you looked at it, what were what were your reactions, and what do you think, if any,
4: lasting significance there might be? Um, <clears throat> so I guess you know, one not to duplicate what others have said, um, but I think one additional reaction I had is the global uh, political implications for. United States and for democracy as a model, because I must imagine that um, in Beijing and Moscow, this was just a wonderful day in the sense that it brought um, illegitimacy to the idea that democracies are more stable and know how to run themselves. Um, And I'm very concerned about that um, coming out of yesterday and how difficult it will be to recover from that um, internationally, and I guess, The other piece that I just want to, in some ways, echo what has been said is just the racist dimensions of what happened yesterday. That this wasn't just incitement of seditionists and insurrectionists, but um, white um, supremacists. And, um, you know, chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, Representative Meeks, made a statement in favor of impeachment and uh, the 25th Amendment. And in his statement, he referred specifically to how the president had earlier told the Proud Boys to stand. Uh, stand on, stand by, and then now um, mobilize them. Um, yesterday, because everybody knew the Proud Boys had announced uh, widely that they were coming, um, and that's who he mobilized. And the images of the Proud Boys wearing, you know, shirts inside the Capitol saying that six million uh, uh, Jewish deaths in the Holocaust were not enough is what happened yesterday. Um, and then to the point about the Capitol Police, I find some of these issues really hard to talk about in terms of their lasting implications because when you see the white mob making their way through the barriers and you see a white woman being escorted down so she, by, by holding her, a Capitol Police officer holding her hand so she can be escorted down the steps from the Capitol, um, why is that happening? I mean, and, and, and the white, mob chasing an African-American uh, Capitol police officer up some stairs. It's, a, it's happening because of white supremacy. It's happening because I think in many, in many ways, law enforcement has a very different level of comfort with certain crowds and a fear and apprehension with other crowds. But to talk about it in those terms, what I find is difficult is that it actually empowers them um, because the, what makes it through the barrier is because they have the force of white supremacy in our country behind them. And they think of yesterday as emboldening them. The the images of this white nationalist inside Nancy Pelosi's office with his feet up on her table. That will remain for a long time. That was a emboldening day. One of Trump's tweets that was then taken down at the end of the tweet, he says, and remember today. Why? He wants it to live. And um, that's what I worry about in terms of the lasting effects of this. I'm sure we'll get into discussions about what to do about Trump and accountability and impeachment and 25th Amendment. But um, that's that's with us right now. And I don't know um, the ways in which we're going to try to react to that or counteract that.
1: Well, I definitely do want to get into some of those things. In fact, I'd like to turn this a little bit more um, forward looking. Um, uh, but but, you know, let me sort of pick up on where you left off, because. Was it yesterday or? Was it the the day before, perhaps, that in Kenosha, Wisconsin, um, the the, the, uh, district attorney determined that there would not be charges filed in the shooting of a black man, Jacob Blake, who um, the police officer was holding his shirt and shot him seven times in the back. You know, and they were letting these guys into the Capitol building in droves. And it now, as it turned out, they may have stolen computers. There may have been national security consequences to the whole thing. There were some real physical threats to very senior level officials in the United States government. It was an extremely dangerous situation. But the double standard was so clear, compared to the BLM um, protests with, you know, which Joe Biden correctly brought up today. Um, and and, and that's deeply distressing. And having said that, because I do want to turn it a little bit forward, let's turn our thoughts back, and I I know this is going to be a little bit difficult, 36 hours. You know, yesterday morning, the story was Georgia. (laughs) Yesterday morning, you know, Karen, you had been there, you'd worked with Stacey Abrams. Stacey Abrams had been working for 10 years in this red state, and this amazing transformation had taken place. And the state of Georgia, um, I think elected the first black Democrat
0: yeah. to the
1: United States Senate ever. Um uh, the Jewish son of immigrants to the United States Senate. I- I'm disturbed that he's 33 years old. It troubles me, you know, in, in, in a way that, you know. Um, but but you know, this is. This is there There was yesterday morning, this kind of sense of hope. And, and then on top of that, of course, the Democrats can control the Senate. Yeah. Um, how did you feel because you'd been in the middle of all that,
0: you know, the night before I was, you know, in my pattern of like, saying like, okay, I'm going to go to sleep. Okay, no, I'm going to check my phone. Okay, I'm going to go to sleep. I'm going to ch- Check my, and I just, you know, it's one that I've been through, you know, 2016, 2018, you know, this cycle. And finally, I was like, okay, I have to get some sleep. And so to wake up and find out what happened, I was so excited. And, you know, I, I, it was actually just before joining you, I was on a debriefing call with Stacy and Fair Fight. And, you know, they're obviously going through the data. You know, I think part of what is so exciting, I mean, they actually improved and increased margins from the general election to the runoff. And I think we can't forget that this whole runoff system is a Jim Crow era relic in and of itself. But I, you know, and I think it's important that we um, acknowledge that, that um, you know, they were able essentially to win outside of, the possibility of a runoff, right? I mean, they, 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 we want it clear um, and increased margins among black voters, um, among voters who hadn't, you know, pulled out voters who didn't vote in the general election and what that means in the, in the history and the big picture of, you know, I think for black southerners uh, and, and, and white voters too, who are, par- who are part of wanting to see change to say, yes, you can change. This is possible. We have to stop writing off groups of people. But I want to share with you something that a a friend of mine who runs uh, an organization that helped to register 36,000 Latino voters in Georgia, you know, a young staffer of hers said, You know, I see what happened at the Capitol and I feel like they were protesting our work. And so I think part of as we celebrate. Georgia, and part of what terrorists want to do is to take away our joy, and to take away our sense of um, pride for for what was done. And the fact that we are an increasingly diverse country, we are increasingly fighting voter suppression, we are with help of people like Rick and others trying to improve our elections, right? That, That process is not gonna stop. Um, and so maybe that is part of, you know, the, the arc of history that we had this morning, where we celebrated that triumph, and then we saw, you know, violent protesters, violent violent rioters, terrorists trying to pull us backward. And so I think it's, you know, David, it's such an important point, and I think it's so important that we honor the excitement of um, what happened in Georgia and the fact that people. We're not going to be, def, you know, denied their right to vote and have that vote counted. Um, and just the work that was done and the way, you know, the, the Stacey Abrams playbook, which I'm hoping, you know, the democratic party makes that our Bible. <laughs> Going forward, Um, because there's so much that she did, and that you know, uh, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff in their run in this their elections helped to improve on that. I think we can learn from. And one of the most important, and then I'll shut up, is we don't take any voters for granted and we stand up for who we are as Democrats and talk about our values in every part of a state. We don't write off groups of people, Um, and we don't write off people and say, Well, you know so and sos won't will never vote in the right in these numbers right that's not true actually, and it's time we stop behaving that way
1: yeah, no, no, it's an amazing story uh it it is also a story that says this takes time attention to detail, perseverance, ground game you know yes. we we all get caught up in sort of the headlines, and the world gets changed door to door call to call and and Stacey Abrams led that and No one has called me from the Biden campaign to ask my opinion on this, but I personally would like to see Stacey Abrams running the Democratic Party, um, because I'd like to see the technology and the thinking behind Georgia, to use a Howard Dean term, turned into a 50 state strategy. You know, I think that would be a that would be a big thing. Um, Rick, uh, there are a lot of ways to look at what's happened in the past election. Um, uh, I I thought your article in The Atlantic was extremely good and I'd like to sort of get to what the recommendations are. Uh, But one of the ways to look at it is that it worked. You know, one of the, you know, I mean, you know, Donald Trump is as toxic a figure as has ever been in the American political system. Uh, He has tried to cheat in as many different ways as is possible from, you know, using his DOJ, using the post office, using the presidency, using money, using court cases, et cetera. Um, and he couldn't steal the election. Um, he couldn't steal it because 62 court cases or whatever it was went against him. Trump appointed judges went against him. Um, uh, public state officials, probably with whom I'd agree with very little politically, like um, uh, in the, the Georgia state officials, did their job. You know, they stuck they stuck to things. Did you take any, you know, and, and this ridiculous, seditious effort in the House and the Senate
3: didn't work. Do you take some comfort from that? It's re- very mixed feelings. Uh, I think that if there had been 16,000, a, a shift of 16,000 votes in two states, move Arizona and um, uh, Georgia so that they're within a few thousand votes, then I think all bets are off. And then I think the pressure would have been enormous on state legislatures. That's where I think, you know, the rank and file Republican legislators, the same people who are the house, uh, you know, what what did we see last night in uh, Pennsylvania? Uh, uh, Well over 120 uh, representatives voting to sustain an objection to a frivolous complaint about how the election was run in Pennsylvania. We came really close to uh, losing our democracy, because uh, there were too many people who were not willing to stand up. And in fact, either were too afraid of Donald Trump or willing to embrace the kind of Trumpian wing, the Tea Party wing of the Republican Party, that things really could have gone south. Well, I I wrote, you know, in in my book, I I spent uh, nearly half a chapter on Brian Kemp and the terrible things he had done to democracy in Georgia. And yet Brian Kemp was a hero in this election. I I never, you know, I never thought that I would be so, enamored of the, the guts of, of Brian Kemp who put himself at political risk to say, you know, we're not gonna steal the election for you or Brad Raffensperger, the um, uh, secretary of state of, of Georgia who, rec- who recorded and released that call where Trump committed a crime. And the same day I had the piece in the Atlantic I got a piece in Slate saying that Trump should be prosecuted. The Fulton County prosecutor in Georgia should prosecute him for violating Georgia he committed a crime, he should be impeached and removed from office just for that. I mean, it's just, it's so beyond the pale, but we came close and and the point of the Atlantic piece is that so much of our election machinery, how we translate people's votes into electoral college counting in Congress depends upon the good faith of people, depends on norms. And we need to get rid of those places where there's slack and move, uh, you know, we can have a debate about getting rid of the electoral college, I'm happy to talk about that, but assuming that's not gonna happen, How do we remove the slack so that we don't have to know who the Wayne County canvassing board members are? And, you know, I felt like for the last um, three, four months, I've played a role of national therapist more than election law scholar because people (laughs) were really scared. I mean, I got you know, a dozen emails a day and lots of messages on social media of people who were really worried that the courts were not going to hold. Fortunately, they did. I mean, the courts were a bright spot. The election officials, Republican and Democrat, who had to make decisions, most of them behaved admirably. But, you know, the reason I have mixed feelings is watching so many Republicans last night after the assault on the Capitol still vote to sustain the objections. That wasn't about, let's have a debate about whether there was a a fair election in Pennsylvania and whether there's a fair election in Georgia. And let's be clear, the complaints were totally frivolous. This was the cleanest election, the most examined election in United States history, so far as I can tell. And yet we still had people who were willing to vote to overturn the will of the voters. And that's profoundly worrying going forward. So I've been telling people, don't worry about January 6th, because I wasn't expecting the Capitol walls were going to be breached. I said, worry about the next five years, and I'm still worried about that.
1: Well, and we should turn our attention to that. I'll get to it in the, in the, in the next round of things. Um, Kavita, a consequence of, of what happened in Georgia is that the Democrats now control the Senate. Uh, and the Democrats uh, uh, control the house the house margin is smaller the Senate margin is hair thin um, but that means judges that means getting a cabinet level appointments appointed that's it's why Merrick Garland is going to be the Attorney General of the United States because they weren't going to take him off the the um, circuit court if, if 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 he if he um, could you know if he couldn't be replaced Um and it's going to be possible to move some agenda through, not the whole agenda, because a lot of things are going to require 60 votes. I know you're a creature of the hill. But for example, there was an article in The New York Times today on healthcare, mm-hmm. And in terms of healthcare initiatives, there are half a dozen you could do through reconciliation, uh, expanding Obamacare, getting rid of certain challenges to Obamacare and so forth. So as a, as, a, as a former denizen of the Hill and somebody who has thought a lot about agenda, um, are you optimistic, substantive things can get done thanks to this progress?
2: Yes and no. I mean, i I've, I've- I'll be honest, I think we've learned a lot. I think Obama learned a lot. And now we've seen a lot more confidence to do things by executive order, first of all, and not to have to constantly default to legislation. I'm thrilled, obviously, that we have uh, kind of the majority and Vice President-elect Harris kind of ruling over that. And yes, a ton can be done, including health reform, as you know, very controversial to do it through reconciliation. But yes, you can do incredible amounts through reconciliation. It'll be interesting to see, if you recall, the last time we had this split was when um, Trent Lott and Tom Daschle were in the Senate. I was just coming into the Senate and they created this kind of gentleman's bargain. You know, they had these agreement rules on how they would handle committees and process. And uh, it'll be interesting to see kind of Schumer and McConnell, whether they take those same rules and just kind of tweak them or how they adapt them. McConnell's tough and smart. I mean, do not make any mistakes about what this man will do to continue to have power. So I worry a little bit, Schumer's also very smart, but I worry a little bit that the Democrats might not necessarily fight as hard as they should to kind of position themselves so that when these votes come up, that they are still in a position of power. So there's reconciliation rules. There's certainly what the role of the vice president is in breaking ties. But so much of this comes down to how we stack the committees. Um, Tom, you know, Lott and Dashel had a 50-50 split on all the committees. And there's still a process to get things out of committee, to get things to the floor, to invoke cloture. So from a process standpoint, I would really hope that the, you know, Joe Biden has a Senate career and you've got. Schumer, who I assume is going to kind of stay in place, um, and that, that is kind of the key. In terms of health care, this is when it's going to be important for all of us to continue to push on President-elect Biden to kind of make good on some of the promises that I know progressives are interested in, but to strike a balance with where I think moderate Democrats want to be in at least just restoring the Affordable Care Act. But there is clear pressure now and post pandemic, in addition to kind of the pandemic recovery, to do something to kind of restore and improve access. And that is, that's going to have to come in the form of doing something that puts Texas and Florida, which have not expanded Medicaid, to expand Medicaid and also offers a pathway now that we have, you know, it's ironic, David, the stock market didn't seem to care that the capital was almost on fire yesterday, right? So we have a private market that basically is like, oh, sure, whatever. So I want there to be some recognition that the role of the federal government is to provide this infrastructure of which health, energy, climate change, all of these things are critical. So I'm really hoping the Biden administration comes out with, you know, we, we lost a window in the early part of Obama to get some things done and we suffered from it. And I really hope this administration does not do the same.
0: I can I add one quick thing to that, which is just as a tactician, you know, I all due respect to President Obama. I think the other issue was Have to do a better job communicating with the American people at all levels, and it's you can't just think you're going to get on television. It's got to you know take all of those tools we were just talking about in terms that we've learned from election work about you know texting and social media because you know one of the things I did some work for the DCCC this cycle, and I will tell you that um, particularly among Black voters, we saw a 20 percent drop in enthusiasm to vote down ballot from the presidency. And one of the things we saw with white voters and black voters, not a lot of good idea, a sense of who's fighting for what. And so I think you know one of the big lessons in 2020 and the success of 2020 and the potential success, hopefully, of the things that Kavita was talking about is the American people, we have to do a better job of making sure they know who is fighting for what. Um, or we're not gonna have the kind of public support needed to help with those political maneuvers that are gonna be so important.
2: And that includes all this conversation about, about like equity and racial equity, like just talking about it is not gonna be good enough. Mm-hmm. I, and I think that's where kind of related to Rick, like these norms, I would as a, as a, a policy person think, we, you know, Trump has violated and created a kind of an environment where those normative behaviors, to your point, you know, just don't even, you know, in in this absence of any kind of normative behavior, you know, I would think, oh, we need rules. Those same rules can kind of unintended, you know, kind of unintentionally kind of really disengage and disinhibit the very populations we need. And so, I think it's incredibly hard work that needs to be done. Nothing's going to be easy, and couldn't agree more, Karen and both Rick. Like with the work we need to do, David, the work on healthcare won't get done without those pieces, communication, and the sense that kind of our freedoms and democracy are restored are going to happen. They're just not.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, yes, no question about that. Now, again, keeping in 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 a sort of forward looking vein, uh, although Ryan, I've asked them some sort of. Long-term, forward-looking things. I'm going to ask you a a 12-day forward-looking thing. Um, You know, because you know, coming out of what we've just seen, you have both the Speaker of the House and the Senate Majority Leader, and even uh, you know, a Republican member of Congress, uh, Adam Kinzinger, uh, saying uh, the President of the United States should be removed from office because of what just happened and they advocate the 25th amendment and some people are saying, uh, or impeach him, uh, uh, you know, but um, apparently Mike Pence wouldn't even take Schumer and Pelosi's call on the 25th amendment today. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, showing once again his towering moral courage. Um, and, uh, uh, the, the question is accountability. How do you hold the president of the United States who orchestrated a massive coup attempt um, accountable?
4: Um, so yeah, I think it's um, complicated in the sense of uh, there are at least three tools, right? So one is move ahead with impeachment with the theory that um, one of the penalties for impeachment could be that he's disqualified from holding future office. And my understanding is that there's a historical precedent that that penalty can be imposed by a, um, a, a just a normal majority in the Senate. There's also just to throw in another wrinkle to that tool is that there's the question as to whether or not the Senate could convict a former official. So let's say the House votes for his impeachment. And then after January 20th, it's in Schumer's hands to run the trial. Can the Senate then vote um, for his conviction and disqualification from future office? My sense is that the scholarly community is a little bit uh, scattered on that question. Um, and so that's you know one tool of accountability. And that there was a, you know, a statement, made, and it looks like at this point that he will be impeached by the House, you know, my best guess, based on the statements that uh, Pelosi said, and just as we were coming on the podcast, she announced that she has enough support in the House to impeach him. That's the one. The second one is the 25th Amendment. You know, I didn't know which way to read the fact that Pence wouldn't take their call and they were on hold for 25 minutes. Maybe he is ambivalent, and that's why it took 25 minutes <laughs> before he decided not to take the call, or
1: I he think Pence- is, his, He could have been washing his hair, too. Well,
0: because, <laughs> um blowing it um, dry. If I, if I
4: were Mike Pence, the fly and, I were, problem, you know. and I were potentially headed down that path, I'm not sure my hand would be strengthened with the Republican base to say that I first consulted with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer before I made that decision. Um, so is not taking their call. He didn't uh, get on the call and say, this is a non-starter. And there are reports that there are multiple senior officials who are seriously considering uh, the 25th Amendment. Um, So uh, the 25th Amendment, one thing that I've tweeted about because it just another wrinkle on that is, many think that it is more politically onerous because it requires the approval of two thirds of the House and the Senate to approve the decision by Pence and eight out of 15 department heads. And that's incorrect in our current environment because the clock would run out um, in terms of Congress would have 21 days to decide, but by, by the time of the end of that 21 days, that uh, Trump would no longer be able to um, be back in and be post January 20th. So that's an immediate, I think the quickest way to get him out of power. Um, Pence and eight out of the, Uh, 15 department heads. Um, So you could say cabinet members for shorthand, though it's not exactly cabinet members. And then the third one is, um, and I'll just maybe we could kick it to Rick, because he tweeted something about this, um, accountability through the threat of criminal indictment and prosecution. Right? So some people are saying, and this, I think, Rick, you had a tweet about this, like kind of, what would you do if you had the opportunity to give Trump a pardon in exchange for him leaving? How much do you really care about, and are you concerned about the vulnerability of the country in the next 13 days that that trade-off is worth it? Get that guy out of the White House as immediately as possible in exchange for a pardon so that he does not need to worry about something that's New York Times reporting he's worrying about today, Um, uh, criminal accountability in the future. And I think my I don't know where I sit on that. I think that there are a lot of variables, but one quick answer to that might be what I said earlier in the podcast. I think he is a long-term threat. The white supremacist base is a long-term threat. And maybe one thing that we have is leverage. So it doesn't end over the th- in the 13 days. One piece of leverage we have over him is he could be indicted any time. The man has committed <laughs> crimes. The Mueller report is a roadmap <clears throat> for an indictment that could be handed down by the justice department at any point he survives in some ways on the good graces of now we know it'll be, you know, attorney, the, the attorney general and, um, and the white house. So I think that might be one piece of leverage. One doesn't want to trade away. Yeah. And it
1: does raise the issue of the, the you know, the possibility he would pardon himself or somebody else would pardon him. Um, at which I, I don't know if we'll have time to get to that, Rick, I know you've got a hard stop in three minutes and, and, uh, Ryan just kicked something over to you, so maybe you want to respond to that before you go.
3: Yeah, well, I put this out there just as a question. And uh, last time I looked, I think there were about thirty-five hundred responses, which were almost all no. That you know, there has there has to be truth and reconciliation. That uh, there has to be an accounting. Uh, and, and the practical thing is that even if Trump were um, given some kind of agreement against federal prosecution, he's subject to state prosecution in New York. Uh, it may be in, um Georgia and, and in other places. And so I think there is, um, you know, there's no practical way to completely immunize him, even if he would take that deal, but he still holds the nuclear codes. He's increasingly isolated. Uh, the next um, week and uh, four days is going to be harrowing for everyone. And, you know, I would probably take that deal just because I'm a risk minimizer. I mean, I, I see myself as trying to prevent the meltdown of the core reactor, and I'm willing to spend a lot to do that uh and so uh we're we're in a precarious moment and i think let's get through the next month and then we can start looking forward to how we're going to rebuild american democracy.
1: well i have to say i wish i had seen your tweet because i tweeted out what sounds like something very similar and said, you know, what about what if he, you know, because he can't really get impeachment done and the 25th amendment doesn't look likely. And self-pardon probably is not really going to work for him. You know, what if he went to Pence and and said to Pence, "I'm going to resign. You pardon me, and then leave it to you know the, what's going to happen with the states for those of us who'd like to see accountability." And I floated it, you know, in in the you know 280 characters that I was given, and immediately got a tsunami of "shut the fuck up." You know, so, you know, it was kind of people were kind of like, no, you know, we have to punish him. And it's all all I'm saying is a lot of the punishment just doesn't seem likely to happen to me. And so, you know, as you say, let's let's keep from having the meltdown in the reactor. Anyway, Rick, I know you've got to go. We're going to finish up here, but uh, thank you for joining us. And hopefully you come again sometime soon. Absolutely. It was a great conversation. Thank you. Um so let me do sort of a last round here sort of uh, quick quick responses of you know how does this week change anything um uh and and Karen you know I'm particularly interested politically because there's this kind of you know, it, it takes 24 hours for things to evolve into becoming a certain long-term trend in in Washington, and and and
0: oh, that seems long to me, David. Yeah,
1: well, I'm a little slow, but one of the <laughs> ones that seems like a sort of a certain long-term trend out of this is um, that a lot of Republicans have decided that Ronald um, that uh, that Donald Trump is toxic, and that there is you know there a lot you know a week ago. You would have had a lot of people saying after the election, after he loses, Trump's going to dominate the party. He's going to be out there. He'll be the face of it until he steps aside. He's like, I don't know if that's true anymore. What do you think?
0: Well, I, I wish I agreed with you on that. Unfortunately, you still have Republicans on you know, certain networks defending him, some trying to say, oh, actually, it was Antifa. This is false flag. And just incredibly dangerous. That,
1: that would be the Cartoon Network?
0: That would be the Cartoon <laughs> Network. <laughs> yes, it would. Yes, it would. Um, and and you know, I think to you know some of the points that we've been making, I mean, I think he is a clear and present danger to the United States of America, not just between now and the 20th of January. And so I think that has to be taken seriously as well as those 131 members of Congress that we talked about and 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 the senators and those who participated and aided and abetted and specifically in yesterday. So I I wish I could agree. I just I just worry that you know you have, you know, we talked about Lindsey Graham who all of a sudden is, you know, realized, oh my gosh, she's a bad guy, <laughs> right? I mean that's political expediency. It's so outrageous. So I think I want to leave, though, on a little bit of a – with a positive thought, which is, you know, the other big thing that happened today in Washington with Merrick Garland being named to be our next attorney general and just a stellar team uh, at the Department of Justice, they have an opportunity in ways that we know Trump never would, of course, to think about how do we pursue justice from – you know, not just with Trump, with, with those rioters, with those terrorists. I mean, and, you know, the FBI is now out there looking for them and, you know, God knows, I mean, you know, one of the most horrifying things was they were so happy to show their faces on television yesterday. The Capitol Hill police who opened doors and were aiding and abetting, I mean, all of this to really systematically think about, you know, in these categories of people, and Congress has its own processes to deal with senators and members of Congress. What could be positive about that is if Americans saw real justice, people being brought to justice, and I go back to David, something that you said, you know, what we saw in Kenosha, the injustice, the injustice, that we saw with Brianna Taylor the injustice that we saw you know over the summer what if we could turn this moment into a moment where we said we're again we don't have to be this we can do better and we're going to do better sure there's going to be those trump followers who will never believe and who will always be a danger but i think there's that could that could be a positive step forward both for president Biden and Vice President um, Harris in terms of how they start to handle this, you know, this moment, but also could help to start restore our faith and our journey towards equal protection under law, which we know is right now is not true.
1: Well, I think that's a great point. I encourage everybody, you know, you're probably very busy and you didn't have time perhaps to watch Joe Biden introduce um, Merrick Garland, uh, the nominee for deputy attorney general, Lisa Monaco, the nominee for associate attorney general, Benita Gupta, uh, the nominee for the head of the civil rights division, Kristen Clark. But if you did and you listened to it, you probably, if you're like me, you wept a little bit mm-hmm. and you hoped a lot because it it really, you know, it had the same tone that Karen was just offering, uh, which was very very uh, positive tone. I would note, by the way, uh, if you're looking for patterns among some of the, you know, it's very important. Washington insiders they don't just look at the the cabinet; they'll look at the deputies and the undersecretaries. And if you look at that group, or you look at this week, we saw that Wendy Sherman was going to become Deputy Secretary of State, who's been a friend of ours here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Toria Newland, uh, Undersecretary of State for P, this started number three job in the State Department. Um, You see a very, and and we earlier saw Kath Hicks as the deputy secretary of defense nominee and, and this very strong group. And, you know, they all seem to have in common the fact that uh, they're women. And, uh, and there is, there is a, you know, there, you know, this is a very diverse administration, but this is one where there is more gender balance finally, than there has ever been in the history of the United States government. And that is also something very helpful. I wanna take two more minutes and I'm gonna ask two questions and they're gonna be terribly unfair for you, Kavita and Ryan, because you can't answer them in a minute, but I'm gonna try to see see if you can just give us a headline. Uh, Kavita, this week, there was uh, a new study that came out. I made reference to it earlier that seems to suggest that perhaps three times as many uh, people as the uh, Twenty million who've been identified as having COVID in the United States have actually had it, uh, and that the the total number of deaths is possibly off by as much as thirty percent. What do you make of that?
2: Oh, I think that it's spot on and probably, honestly, an underrepresentation just because we've had such poor testing and you know thrown so many people into health systems. that were completely overwhelmed and underprepared for it. And still to this date, no national leadership whatsoever and no obligation to any of these, any of these people. And by the way, the majority of those people that are unaccounted for dead that are not necessarily in the current statistics were eight times more likely to be black or brown. So Mm. you have, so you have that. So there's nothing, none of that surprises me. And, you know, people have now talked after yesterday and I'll be done in 10 seconds. After yesterday, people want kind of a, everybody keeps talking about a post 9-11 commission. We need an entire, we need an entire commission just to kind of re- look at this entire past year on so many levels, including COVID. And, and I, I worry a great deal that in the fury to kind of get out of this Trump insanity, we'll forget to do that, but we should hold We should actually hold president elect Biden accountable for that. And Congress speaker Pelosi and kind of, you know, majority leader Schumer, they should, Congress should be held along with the executive office accountable for, even though it wasn't their doing, they should be accountable and held responsible to answer to what we are going to do for people going forward to Karen's point. It needs to be communicated.
1: Right. We had a nine 11 commission. It wasn't a very good commission, but, uh, uh, 9/11, the loss of life was less than the loss of life has been almost every day of the past month. is likely to be less than the loss of life that we'll see every day for the next month or two, uh, at least. And so, you know, and you know, this was in many ways a self-inflicted wound, and that kind of a commission is essential. Good job answering that question in one minute. So, I'm going to make it harder on you, Ryan. I'm going to give you two questions to answer in mm-hmm. one minute. Can the president um, self-pardon? can he give himself a uh, 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 you know, sort of a get out of jail free card for the future?
4: Um, so he, as Rick had mentioned earlier in the show, he cannot pardon himself for state crimes. And I'm definitely looking at what New York state authorities are gonna do soon after January 20th, because it certainly sounds like they have, are mounting um, a case against Donald J. Trump and they'll have the goods uh, for a bunch of financial crimes. And then the second is, I don't think he can uh, pardon himself. The constitutional law scholarly community uh, says there's no such thing as a self pardon. And nicely enough, this time around, there's an office of legal counsel opinion that in it says the president cannot pardon himself. Um, so if anything, by doing that, I think it might um, as a political matter look more incriminating to him and if I were him, I might also worry about a jury and what they think about the reasons why a person would uh, pardon themselves or try to.
1: Well, the the New York Times has a story today by Michael Schmidt saying that he's been discussing self-pardoning. Um, of course, he's been discussing it with his crack legal team, which includes Rudy Giuliani and maybe you know Lynn Wood, who's you know probably out out in the forest howling at the moon someplace. So we um, wonder whether he's getting uh, good advice. Um, But uh, I I suspect over the course of the next 12 to 13 days, our next wave of outrage with the president is going to have to do with pardons and who gets pardoned, how many and what he attempts to do with it. But we'll see. You never you never want to you never want to, you know, get limit. The possibilities of outrage from this president. Anyway, this was a great discussion and a very tough week. I personally feel like I've been inside a washing machine for the past week, just Mm -hmm. you know, sort of turning around and getting thrown against the walls of it, not getting any sleep. Um, uh, and of course, you know, much more serious things were happening than than my own reaction. You guys have put it in perspective. That's why we are very lucky to have had you here. Thank you, Karen. Thanks to Rick, who has gone. Thank you, as always, to Kavita and Ryan. Uh, folks, if you want to know what else we've got coming up and we're going to have a lot of special programming next week. Um, looking at the last week of the Trump administration, hallelujah, and uh, uh, and then we'll, the following week, we'll do a bunch of stuff looking forward to the next, to the, the, the beginning of the Biden administration. Um, go to the dsrnetwork.com, and if you want to become a member, you know, click on member, and why wouldn't you want to become a member? Uh, think of how great this program was and how smart these people were. And don't you want to support that? So, you know, do something, you know, positive. It's not expensive and it helps us. So the dsrnetwork.com. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kavita, Ryan, and Karen again. Bye-bye.